Hey everybody, this is Joshua Heston. And I'm Lisa Martin. And this is the Dark Ozarks on the Branson Podcast Network. We're an exploration of everything that's dark in history, mysteries, the paranormal, and everything else. We explore the noir, the unknown, cryptozoology, UFOs, paranormal, and all the dark stuff that happens in the Ozarks. You can find Dark Ozarks on Branson Podcast Network on Facebook under Dark Ozarks, as well as our YouTube channel, Dark Ozarks. We'll leave no stone unturned to bring you the dark history, mysteries, and legends of the Ozarks. Welcome to the Dark Ozarks. We are diving into dark history, legends, and hauntings of the Queen City of the Ozarks, Springfield, Missouri, and there's a lot to cover. We'll get back to that in a minute, but first we want to remind you that the Dark Ozarks podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or just about any other podcast platform you use. So what is scary about Springfield's past? Well, there's a lot to cover in the dark tales of Springfield. The Queen City fits well in the noir genre. From murder to war to hauntings, we actually may be talking about Springfield in more than one episode. And that's even before we get to legends about vampires in the tunnels beneath downtown or the albino farm. There have been a lot of things happen in Springfield that was very dark and some that are hard to explain. And of course, it's up to everyone to decide what really happened in some cases. We will discuss what you thought was merely the largest city in the southern Missouri Ozarks. But first, we want to invite everyone to like, follow, etc. Dark Ozarks on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Plus, we encourage you to follow the podcast. While you're on Facebook, you can subscribe to the private Dark Ozarks subscribers group. Why, you may ask? Yes, it does have a small subscription fee, but you receive exclusive content and behind-the-scenes info that you don't find anywhere else. It also helps us bring more original content to Dark Ozarks. You can click the subscribe button on the page. You will have to log in uh, because there's a payment. We do appreciate everyone. And now you can get Dark Ozarks t-shirts for sale at darkozarks.com and paranormalsciencelab.com. We encourage everyone to check out Always Buying Books in Joplin, Missouri, in person and online on Facebook and their website, alwaysbuyingbooks.com, for all of your reading needs, including a large section on the paranormal, history, and more, not to mention the building's haunted. Tell Bob and Elise that we sent you. We also want to thank Beard Engine Brewing Company in Alba, Missouri. Beard Engine Brewing is the only English-style brewery in Missouri and has been twice named Missouri's best brewery by the Missouri Brewers Association. Great beer and great food in a historical building with a noir past. And yes, this building is also haunted. Tell Nate and Tiff that we sent you. Speaking of noir past, uh, Springfield's noir past started pretty early. It does start early. Just to frame this a little bit, the city of Springfield was incorporated officially in 1838. Uh, there were settlers transitioning into the of what is now downtown as early as around 1830. But <clears throat> even well before that, uh, there were Native American groups in the, in the immediate region. Of course, the Osage uh, for a very long time. And uh, then the Kickapoo and the Del Delaware, among others, were, had, had direct interaction with the space, uh, mainly <clears throat> 
either in the case of the Kickapoo um, being that, which is, a, is an Algonquin uh, language people <clears throat> um, moving or migrating into the, the, the now Springfield area, uh, primarily just to get away from European settlers and the, uh, and the Delaware being forcibly mm, given space uh, primarily along the James River uh, and, and <clears throat> impacting the, the culture, creating culture, they're not, you know, you know, not long, comparatively speaking, not long before. <clears throat> it is, it, it, to me, it is very interesting as the looking at these aspects <clears throat> that when you look at, when you read uh, old accounts, particularly of settlers, early settlement, early white settlement in states like Missouri, states like Iowa, that something that you see is uh, early settlers would record that say there's an Indian village here, or there's a trading post and the Indians are doing this or doing that, so on and so forth. And oftentimes without a lot of context, and, and quite frankly, in many cases, the uh, the early white settlers into the area didn't have a lot of context. They might not even have known necessarily what tribe they were dealing with. They just knew sure. there is a settlement and they're not white to a large degree. Pretty much, yeah. <clears throat> and at the and and either do we get along with them or do they not? Do they get along with us or do they not? Those, which of course, if you're out on the 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 frontier and your primary <clears throat> interest is in personal survival and the survival of your family you're you're probably not going to be real keen on focusing on anything other than that it's very it was a very pragmatic time for for everyone you didn't have a whole lot of time to think to, to think about things that weren't did not pertain to subsistence to be honest <laughs> we need to engage in an immediate anthropological study right now no we don't we need to get ready for winter and we have about six weeks uh, those yep. those realities <clears throat> but many of the uh many of the native american groups that white settlers were interacting with were not native to these regions west of the mississippi they were True. uh oftentimes northeastern uh or northern uh, people groups that were being displaced from places like present day upstate New York or Michigan or Wisconsin or Illinois. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see with, uh, with the Kickapoo. We see that with other uh, woodland uh, language group peoples uh, <clears throat> like the Shawnee and the Potawatomi, et cetera, coming, being pushed into these areas or, or forcibly marched and then of course that leads us to the late 1830s around 1838 about the time that Springfield was getting officially incorporated is that one route of the Cherokee Trail of Tears transitioned through what is now uh, the Springfield Metro. And, and I think that's something that most people even, even if they're aware of the Trail of Tears coming through the Ozarks they're not aware that there was a route that far north but really there there were several routes and 
we hear a lot more about in Southern Missouri, the Trail of Tears going through, say, Berry County around Cassville and so forth. Um, but um, I think most people would be surprised, and probably a lot of people who live in Springfield be surprised that they're walking on ground that was part of the Trail of Tears. Yes, and in some cases, um, interacting with individuals whose ancestors were on that trail. True, true. Um, there, I, I think it's it, it's kind of hard to conceive of the number of, of people that um, were affected by the relocation. Yes. Uh, I know it's over, I think, 30,000. I believe roughly. so. And, and to give a, give a sense of scope, it's estimated between around seven to 8,000 were on the trail that came through Springfield. So, you know, that, that's a large percentage. Um, it really is. <clears throat> it, uh, and some of this, for, for people who do know uh, elements of this, they're gonna be like, yeah, we know. Uh, but for folks who don't, the, one of the things that I, I find really beautiful and, and fascinating and sometimes even sad um, is, is how many people have, for example, Cherokee heritage uh, or, or other native group heritage. First of all, some of them may not even know it. Um, others may essentially have this heritage, this ancestry invisibly because they, they quite frankly do not look as they would be expected to look <clears throat> for having the heritage. And it reminds me, I cannot tell you the name of this person because I don't remember her name, but I remember a long time ago uh, having a really, um, a, a conversation that really impressed me uh, with, a, with a, an individual uh, who was on Cherokee uh, tribal roles and <clears throat> Uh, she was uh, blonde, she had blue eyes, and she was speaking to me very eloquently and very passionately about her Cherokee ancestry. And at one point she said, and I've heard the drones. And I went, pardon me? And she said, I, I've heard the drumming. I've mm -hmm. heard drumming on a, on a spiritual level at key points juncture points in my life and <clears throat> I just I found that to be so beautiful and so moving it it, it is and I've, I've known other people who with similar similar accounts um not quite as pronounced but um that um if you didn't know you would not assume that they had native blood and where it has affected them greatly. I mean, it guides their lives. Uh, and so we, we do walk in this, this area in the Ozarks that is kind of a threshold itself. It's a threshold to what we conceive of as the West and the Old West. It and, is. And it really started here. Um, uh, primarily in around the 1830s with so many of these things going on uh, yes. that when, when you talk about most of the mythos of the old west it started here but it, 
more known in other places. And certainly I think pop culture in the 20th century and the 21st century has reinforced that idea because of the prevalence of movies, TV shows, et cetera, highlighting those stories out in the desert uh, in, in, in the far Southwest now, which ironically, this was the Southwest of the United States at the time. This was absolutely the uh, the the ragged frontier edge of the United mm -hmm. States, yeah. <clears throat> and and the the well, the two things on on that one. How much, I suppose, uh, <clears throat> artisanship or artifice got inserted in pop culture in the mid twentieth century? primarily through uh, Westerns. Yes. <clears throat> and although the, not directly associated with Springfield, certainly directly associated with the Ozarks and Fort Smith, Arkansas, the original story, True Grit, if you read the book, is centered around Fort Smith and the young protagonist of the, of the film yeah. is from the Arkansas Ozarks. Yes. And the original True Grit film uh, plays so loosely with those facts that you would have no idea that that there was a connection there with the. Ozone. No, I mean, no. To be honest, you you assume it's West Texas or someplace. To be honest, um, the the remake is is a little more faithful. Yes, I I love the remake. I, I love the I, Coen Brothers remake. I do, I do too. And another good example is um, Clint Eastwood in Hang 'Em High. Yes, that took place in Fort Smith. Fortunately, I mean they they were very candid about that, um, and and that it was portrayed that way. And ironically, ironically, some of Clint Eastwood's westerns are sort of sort of the departure from that pop culture motif in that they did stress the connection to the Ozarks. Um, yes. the Wales, for instance, <clears throat> Unforgiven, you know, uh, specifically as well. Um, you know, giving a nod to the importance of this area, the Ozark region and in the borderlands to those stories. But um, we, we tend to forget that. Um, and another thing is beyond the settlement with, with, the, um, with the tribes um, and the Trail of Tears, you know, we, we tend to think of Indian Wars as a far west uh, issue. Yes. Um, think of Custer's Last Stand and Wounded Knee and Geronimo. And we had Indian Wars in in the Missouri Ozarks in the 1830s, same time as really kind of overlapping a lot of the Trail of Tears and the founding of Springfield. It really does. I mean, we're we're looking at we're looking specifically we're looking at the Osage War, uh, the winter of 1836 into 1837, um, and we're. It's it's particularly interesting, also <clears throat> heartbreaking because the 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 point 
in a, in the the actual resolve of the uh, of the Osage War was comparatively uh, pacifistic, mm -hmm. but <clears throat> the the issue is that they were running the Osage out of Missouri. Yes. Um, now, you know, uh, the Osage, uh, I guess, is a little background for it to make sense to people. The Osage had moved out of Missouri and Arkansas yeah. in, I think, 1808, uh, 1812. They had signed treaties and moved into Kansas and Oklahoma. And but the problem was that their hunting grounds were poor over there. So um, they, they wait basically 20 some years and things aren't getting better. So they decide we're, we're going back to our old hunting grounds for food. And yes. that's, that was the beginning. Yes. And you can't blame them. No. I mean, this, this was not only hunting grounds, but, um, you know, summer camp and and part and <clears throat> for people who are not familiar the the osage were were a migratory people of the um, sioux or lakota language group and notable in the fact that they were uh the you know your Euro <clears throat> european contact writing things down journaling things out that we still have records for us that the, the osage were notable for two things one um their statuesque beauty and two the fact that they were terrifying in war yes and not just not just to european settlers but also to other indians yes and including with the a, cherokee including the cherokee with a pinship for beheadings um yes. and that uh, and that but you think about that and of course you know tying this into springfield that <clears throat> the Springfield Plain, the, the space of it is now Springfield, was part of that summer hunting ground. Mm -hmm. And there were there were these spot, you know, sections in and not just for hunting, uh, not just for hunting animals, but also root digging for gathering herbs for uh, medicinals for plants for all of these things. <clears throat> and the and the utilization of the springs so one of one of the aspects there, there's there's two competing stories, I don't know which one to go with um i'm gonna gonna land on both uh but that that uh springfield originally what is now downtown that there were a lot of springs before the before urban infrastructure uh lots and lots of freshwater springs and it was a field with lots of springs hence springfield but we also have the potential that is named after springfield massachusetts um or, or, or illinois or illinois so <clears throat> um Actually, I think Springfield is one. I I, I think they're uh, Springfield is in more states than virtually any other named town. So lots of Springfield. I I saw a map one time that said if you want to take a road trip to every Springfield in the United in the contiguous United States, here's your route. And uh, having grown up an hour and a half away from the one in Illinois and kind of like, okay, fine. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, all that to be said, so there, there is that, we do know that there were a lot of springs uh -huh. in, in the area. And it, it is very reasonable to conjecture that uh, the Osage, particular uh, clan groups of the Osage found what is now Springfield to be a very important location. 
And mm -hmm. you, you think about <clears throat> the, even just, you know, territory and survival aside, you think about the emotional attachments that these generations of people would have had with these locations. And then to be told, you know what, somebody somewhere, not you, uh, signed a treaty, <clears throat> not here. Mm -hmm. And now you're going to do this, whether you want to or not. And then when you comply with it, you suddenly are having a hard time feeding your people. Yes. <clears throat> and you're watching your loved ones starve to death in the winter. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, and when you say no, um, <clears throat> the, the antagonistic group to which you say no to records it as the Osage War of 1836-37. Yes. Now, there were skirmishes. There were skirmishes. Um, and, and in fact, there, there was one what is now the square in Carthage, Missouri. Um, during that time period. So um, it, it was a, a tense time and, and actually um, Judge Yancey from Springfield um, actually went out and tried to negotiate between the parties, um, not necessarily successfully, but he attempted and we'll probably get to Judge Yancey in the next episode on Springfield because he factors into some other noir history as well that he does and <clears throat> in coming down to Springfield itself uh, although the mm, 1830s to 1860s Springfield Square would probably be very unrecognizable to today's folks who are familiar with the current Springfield Square the footprint is the same yes or it is. Itself. The, the square itself is is in the same spot, same size, et cetera, different buildings, <laughs> most different buildings. <clears throat> um, in fact, there is more, um, there was a, um, a courthouse built on see, the northeast side in 1837. Um, and it uh, they were building the new courthouse on the opposite side of the square on the northwest side. Um, <clears throat> early before the war started, the Civil War started, and um, it, there, there are some accounts that um, the old courthouse was burned down uh, during the battle in Springfield, uh, but in reality, it, uh, one of the prisoners had gotten a hold of matches and set it on fire. Small detail. There is a, a, a number of mills and courthouses were yes. casualties during the Civil War. Yes. For, for a variety well, of reasons. It was easy to say that it was part of the battle because it happened while the battle was going on, but it, basically because, because the jailers were too busy with the battle to worry about the prisoners grabbing matches. So and burning the old courthouse down um, well do what you got to do um, yeah <laughs> I, <clears throat> the civil war had a huge impact on springfield it, it it really did i mean well springfield was basically an occupied town throughout the war um first by the by the federal 
Union Army. And then after the Battle of Wilson's Creek by the Confederates until after Pea Ridge in February 1862, and then it um, came under federal control again. Um, but most of downtown Springfield was garrisoned and you had, um, you had cannons and, um, and you know, it, it, it was set up as a, basically as a fortified town. Um, yeah. yes. And the new courthouse, the new courthouse, which was uh, on the Northwest corner, which for those of you familiar with Springfield, the old HERS department store, which has been vacant for a very long time now, uh, sits where that courthouse was. And during the, the Civil War, it was a it was headquarters for the army and hospital, military hospital. So you had people with grievous injuries and, and deaths there all during the war. And ironically, um, as an aside, the HERS building, I've heard for well, ever since I was in college that it's haunted. So, and I've always wondered, is it haunted for something that went on during the department store days or is it really from the Civil War? Or, or some of each. And we, we get experiences like that. Yeah. <clears throat> I think a number of people would be really surprised to know the amount of Civil War violence and casualties that took place within the, the spring, modern Springfield city limits. True. True. I mean, there, well, there's a Mark Graves um, down around Drury um, where there's at least 800 soldiers buried. And correct me if I am wrong on this, because I seem to remember this, <clears throat> that on occasion, the earthenwork uh, fortifications are in some cases still extant, but oftentimes not marked or realized in terms of what they actually are. Yes, yes. There are there there are a few places around, particularly around Drury and, and Central High School and through there where you can see them and it's pretty obvious. But there there are um, several places that the earthen works <laughs> remnants of them are still there. And I think that <clears throat> you know the the this the simple fact that we have these these spaces or for example downtown intersections that some of the most heaviest fighting for example of the second battle of, of Springfield took place with <clears throat> while and again something that we see now we have Wilson's Creek uh, the battle of Wilson's Creek and then of course on the the Missouri Arkansas border the Battle of Pea Ridge mm -hmm. uh, August of 1861 and March of 1862 respectively in which you have large-scale land battles with large-scale land battle casualties mm -hmm. but <clears throat> something that I think is is honestly a shame um, because it, it overlooks just the the, the human um the human cost mm -hmm. is that because many of the 
more recognized battles of the Civil War dealt with mass casualties on a almost unimaginable scope that smaller battles oftentimes get mm, filed away as being inconsequential and you know the the estimated uh estimated casualties for the second battle of springfield uh was 30 union uh soldiers killed uh six missing and 195 wounded and the estimates approximately for confederates was 45 killed or missing with 105 wounded and a uh, a conflicting estimate on the Confederate side of 70 to 80 Confederate soldiers killed with 12 captured and 200 wounded. And this all took place basically just south of downtown off of Campbell Street. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> we're, we're dealing with, um, you know, January 8th, 1863, all in one day. <clears throat> and this is, I, I think it's a testament to the, the unimaginable scope of casualties and death in the Civil War, that something like this gets uh, small markers, and I'm not saying that, you know, we need to have a marker campaign or whatever, but it's, it's a footnote in, the, in American history, it's a footnote in Civil War history, is mm -hmm. something that I would wager that the majority of Springfield citizens are unaware of, and yet uh, a, a minimum of 75 men dead in one day. Yeah. You know, if, this I mean, was, this was, if this were a modern day accident, it would be a mass casualty event on nationwide news. Well, it would be considered that, yes, it, it definitely would. And, you know, Springfield wasn't that big at the time either. I think that's one another thing to to point out. It, you know, we're talking a town of just a few thousand people. Yes. Um, and <clears throat> uh, having two battles and and um that and then in your town fortified for four years um yes th th this is what we you know we hear about you know places like richmond and so forth you know <laughs> going through and and obviously those make sense but you don't really think about it out here but it it happened and that kind of tension and and uh I, I know one one account of a I want to say he was a store owner uh, during the war um, went home for lunch and as he was walking back he you know was uh, mistaken uh, not recognized by soldiers on patrol and confronted and almost they almost shot him before they realized who he was. Um, yeah. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, people were living with. And um, then when, when the war ended, it, you know, it, you didn't just have a boom, you know, everything's back to civilian norm normalcy. And 
you, you still had all of these people and these soldiers in town, and now you had other ones coming into town that, that had been Confederates that weren't there before, uh, and some that had been coming and going too, um, that created other tensions that basically led to the first legend of the Old West. Yes, <clears throat> yes, on the square. On the square. 18, July of 1865, so uh, very shortly after the close of the Civil War, and mm -hmm. uh, clearly at a point that the immediate Missouri region was refinding itself to the best of its ability. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, we, we have a, a legend uh, of the Old West being born in, in the, le the, the legend, not the man, um, man being born in Illinois, the legend uh, beginning in, uh, in downtown Springfield on the square. That's right. Wild Bill Hickok. Um, and, and, and I think, I think it's one thing to say too. Um, it, we always, you know, it's often said, you know, that that's where he became a legend, but, um, the flip side of that is his opponent, Davis Tut, um, as they walked onto the square that day, it was anyone's guess who was going to win because they both were accomplished gunmen. They both were soldiers. They, they both were dangerous men with a gun and it, you know, it, it could have gone either way. It could have. And not to mention that they were best friends. <laughs> yeah. Which is particularly tragic, really. And, and uh, although that much more easy to romanticize, thank you, Harper's Bazaar, mm -hmm. uh, for, uh, for covering this and beginning the process to make Wild Bill Hickok uh, a legend, mm -hmm. uh, a legendary name of the Old West. And I find it particularly powerful that this event took place not only in the Ozarks, but in, in downtown Springfield. And interestingly enough, of course, at a, at a juncture point in which Springfield and Southwest Missouri was the Wild West, literally. It, it was, I think, you know, our looking back in time, we, we don't think of that because we think, oh, we're in the middle of the country, but this was the jumping off uh, point, uh, <laughs> the edge of civilization. And, um, you you had you had those factors and so you know we've said it before on Darko's Arts but it, it really is true that any, whatever happened in the old west happened in those arts first it and did. It did. and in this case you had a, a you know a call out walk down gunfight um which uh, you know histor western historians will tell you didn't happen any other place that they really know of other than this event. Um, and it was sort of, you know, cre creating that mythos as it happened. And, yes. and the participants weren't thinking of it that way. And I think that's one thing to think too, you know, Dave, Dave Tutt and Wild Bill Hickok were having an argument. Um, Two friends, you know, with probably too much whiskey and fighting over a card game, and a pocket watch, and a girl. And <clears throat> which is is of course the the classic makings of 
of, of, of all of, well, not all, but many of these stories uh, oh, yeah. stretching a hundred years and more into the into the future when it's getting <clears throat> um, recreated by Hollywood. And I, I've, you know, something to bear in mind that so many times when these stories get recreated, they, they conveniently uh, shot them in, in <clears throat> either the, uh, the great American Southwest, the, the desert, uh, dramatic desert scapes, or with towering Rocky Mountains behind them. But mm -hmm. the, the emotional resonance and the archetypal resonance of the stories and the human aspect of the story is, is really what we're talking about. And this, this beginning, <clears throat> and of course, this is also coming off of you know, the, <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of different pieces to this. First of all, there is the fact that Tut and Hickok were both um, men who had been through the war on opposing yes. sides. Uh, Hickok originally from Illinois, Tut from Yellville, Arkansas. Uh, Hickok fought in the Battle of Wilson's Creek, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, Tut, even before the war, had been part of a feud uh, near Yellville, in which I believe his father was killed. Yes, uh, Dave was a yeah was a pretty young boy, but he 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 lived through the the feud, the Everett Tut Wars, what they called it, um, and uh, his father was killed. So he, he had seen these things happen, um, and then Wild Bill, he had he had killed men before the war. Um, ironically left Illinois because he thought he killed a man in a bare fist fight in a river and didn't um, and then ended up on the plains in Kansas buffalo hunting and so on and so forth uh, then became a scout for the Union Army and was at Wilson's Creek and other um, I saw other action in the, in this theater um, and was in Springfield for a lot of the war uh, it was in Springfield that he really honed his skills as a gunman. Um, and uh, there are some early accounts of him practicing shooting in an alley, things like that. You just, you don't think of those things. Um, and um, then um, somewhere during the war, he and Tech got acquainted and they both were, you know, gamblers. And in July of 1865, a culmination of things. Um, uh, Tut beat Hickok at Pogue or at Pharaoh at cards, and Hickok couldn't pay pay up right then. And so, uh, sort of the the fatal move, in hindsight, probably was that Dave Tut grabbed his pocket watch and said he was going to hold it until he got paid yes and hickok was mad and said that was his father's watch and he better not wear it in public well so tut took that as you know a slap to honor that since it was said publicly that if he didn't wear it in public he'd be viewed as a coward yes <clears throat> and if he did if he did that Hickok would be mad. So honor culture won out. He wore the watch. Hickok 
called him on it and did a call out for a fight. Now, and, and, and I guess I get where some people would say, well, why wasn't this just a duel? You know, we, we, we had a color, colorful individual <laughs> at this bat today. Um, and um, well, this was just a duel. That's all it was. Um, but dueling was something very different. Um, very much so. And while Bill, when he called Tut out and Tut answered, they created a entirely different kind of confrontation. <clears throat> yes. Dueling, you know, dueling had gone back hundreds of years. There, there, there was the code, what the code dula, I forget what it's, how it's pronounced in Italian, um, that, um, had been honored on the east coast and in the south um they're very strict rules and it's all designed to hopefully no one get hurt as a and that seems very counterintuitive but it is part of the process that, mm -hmm. that the, the the these two uh men of aristocratic bearing can under very strict rules meet one another in the field quote unquote <clears throat> uh, and, and the real point is that they both had the courage to show up and participate. Yes. And <clears throat> with the earlier firearms, the potential of missing was a lot higher. And, and, and often they would purposely miss too. Which is such an interesting aspect of it. But it's the idea that you faced death or faced the potential of death mm -hmm. and then uh, theoretically, both parties walk away with their honor intact and having resolved <clears throat> something that was very interesting that uh, <clears throat> um, in uh, actually one of the books that I need to return uh, to you, uh, Violence and Honor in the Old South, <clears throat> speaking of this, this innately dualistic nature of the duel uh, mm -hmm. after after covering its precise uh, I was reading this early yesterday morning uh, the precise un, unreal not unwittingly that, that it would actually apply for today you just never know but it <clears throat> did a couple of things one the the barbarism of the duel being consistently decried by elements right. of society and then a interesting uh cognitive dissonance that many would use to explain saying yes it's terribly barbaric and yes it's really bad and no there's no way i can sign off on this but if my honor is sullied i'm doing it and <clears throat> that at the same time that it it may have actually functioned as as a way of conflict resolution that minimized death yes. and prevented uh, worse um, violence because this was violence within a structure. Exactly, exactly. And uh, dueling at this point, you know, had been outlawed in Missouri as in most, I think pretty well everywhere by, certainly by the 1860s. And so, 
And actually, when it did still occur uh, formally as a duel, they tended to meet on islands in the middle of the Mississippi and places like that, so they could argue that they weren't in either any state or either state, so they could be prosecuted. Um, a little twist on we're, we're satisfying honor, but we're we're going to do it under the radar. Uh, <laughs> oh, Mr. Pike. <laughs> yes, another story there. Um, but, um, you know, with Hickok and Tut, I think one, the Civil War had kind of thrown that out yeah. in, in many ways. And these were men who were used to action and violence and acting on it. And so you had the call out which, you know, technically you do with a duel, but then we don't follow the, the, the rest of the rules. You just show up and, and um, so Davis said had to decide whether to do so. Now, another issue that kind of probably contributed to all of this was they were feuding about a girl. Yes. They've kind of been fussing about this girl, and then um, uh, then the poker game and the pocket watch was sort of the last straw, and um, Hickok decided to make it an issue of honor, um, whereas ironically, when he was 18, he ran away from facing consequences of what he thought was murder, so it's kind of funny because he had had a bad grant, you know, he had had something in his past that would kind of maybe affect how he viewed this as well as Tut with the family feud and his father dying. Um, so they both decided to walk out on the square. They did. And something that I think is uh, a potential aspect or a potential context of the culture that, that's easy for us to overlook at this point is that Tut was implying that Hickok wasn't wasn't good for his his debts that he wasn't that he right. he might not be worth uh paying up in right. in a card game and, and I think it was twenty five dollars which was a good sum of money in eighteen sixty five yeah and <clears throat> and along with that comes the contextual implication that uh, basically, you're a man without honor, but also, and of course, we can we we look at at sometimes those points in the past, and we go, oh, you're, you know, uh, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, but in this particular case, it could mean that uh, that in, in the if word of this got around, which it obviously already had, uh, mm -hmm. that the people would stop um playing cards with hickok and there's some implication that at this juncture point in his life that was his primary source of income very true and it, you know i mean which was very common i mean um very common for a lot of these guys who ultimately were lawmen gunmen etc um that they they would at various times be professional gamblers yes and <clears throat> so I mean, 
for for individuals who have a far removed sense of personal honor in that 19th century and particularly um, frontier sense or mountain sense, you could find it hard to relate to this situation, mm -hmm. but nobody finds it hard to relate to you might be completely out of money and not be able to buy food the next day, that sort of thing. Yeah, very true, very true. And, you know, there, there were a lot of witnesses. Um, yeah. there were, they definitely were not doing this in a back alley. No, they, they weren't. Um, you know, it had been called out for the, the time and place in front of a crowd. Um, there were at least, you know, over 20 witnesses, I think 24, if I recall right, that ultimately were called before the court. Um, and uh, basically, uh, the witnesses all kind of went, I don't know. What we I do didn't know. <laughs> I didn't see nothing. <laughs> some said they heard one shot. Some said they heard two. Uh, they really weren't sure. They weren't sure who pulled triggers or they weren't really sure whether, you know, uh, Hickok had, had even fired a gun, et cetera. And um, then based on all of that, he was acquitted. Otherwise, he would have been hanged and we would have never yeah. known his name. <clears throat> and there's there are so many elements of the modern myth and the romanticism and the magic of the old west in essentially a split moment we yeah. are we are talking about first of all a hell of a shot yeah it's um, a long it's a long shot it is 75 yards with a navy colt yeah and the, the implication from at least some of the reports is that Tut and Hickok filed, fired simultaneously. Yeah. Which would explain individuals believing they had only heard one shot. Yes. Uh, and... Tut missed. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the suggestion certainly is that he may not have missed by much. Yes. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't really think that that is an issue. It's not that, you know, he didn't get a shot off, probably, or that he was really that far off the mark. Um, and it, it could have gone either way. I think that's, yeah. I think that is one thing to say. <laughs> Sometimes you will hear people say, well, if, if Tut fired first, it was in self-defense. Um, well, Hickok is the one who called him out to the fight to begin with yes you know so he's the one who said i'm going to shoot you i'm going to kill you um, at this time in this place yes be there um and but i, I don't really think that's really an issue i don't think that there i don't think there was much doubt that um he you know he was pulling a gun and even if he got a shot off first he showed up voluntarily this is not something that you know you he was caught out on the street and a gun shoved in his face and you know he had no notice um, <clears throat> um 
he walked he walked on the square willingly that day and i think i think that's one thing that everyone has to remember is they both made that decision yes um, <clears throat> and, and i think that it from the from the court records <clears throat> that was a a primary factor uh coming into the into the acquittal yeah i think so too um and um uh, you know that would be viewed that would it probably would not play out that way today but um no but this was one year after the civil war less than a year even you <laughs> yeah. know i mean it's the time and place that 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 really really factor into it and you know um you know hickok is remembered for how he died you know uh playing poker and with the dead man's hand um yes but ironically I, I think in some ways the, the, the gunfight on the Springfield Square um, says something more about his legend than his end, actually, because um, it shows you know, him coming into his own as a gunman and his contemporaries when you know, he was known you know, as a lawman, as as a gambler and a gunman, and by and large, uh, you know, there was a a lot of his contemporaries who were on both sides of the law who all agreed that Wild Bill was the best gunman they had ever run into. Yes, um, there is a story that. Um, that he and Jesse James actually uh, crossed paths once. Uh, and I want to say that it was um, in Kansas City. It was the Kansas City or St. Joe. And that basically um, uh, they walk, each walked out onto the street, recognized each other, and kind of stared each other down, and neither one pulled a gun. <laughs> which, kind of said, <laughs> which you know and some people say well why would jesse want to pull a gun on him well he he, he was a union man right <clears throat> and right. so he he fit the fit the bill um as as to that and apparently there was some talk that that uh, jesse james had had said that if he ever met Wild Bill, he was going to shoot him. Wow, and it, <clears throat> so many, so many moving parts, and so many individuals who, if they, if for example, if they had lived, um, they might be recognized as as household names of of this era, and then other, et cetera. It, <clears throat> a couple, a couple of things just out of the, even just as a result of the trial. Um, that I found particularly interesting. Uh, a prominent Springfield attorney gave a speech to the crowd from the balcony of the courthouse, denouncing the verdict as, quote, against the evidence and all decency, and there was talk of lynching Hickok. Yeah. As a, <clears throat> um, just to me, I think that, that that speaks in terms of the, the contextualization that human behavior certainly hasn't changed since the 1860s and um, 
so many so many aspects to that um the, well it's also it also is in, in, interesting to me you know some people will be just really you know aghast at that but when, when we're talking about the summer of 1865 in southwest missouri they'd just gone through four years of lots of lynchings mm -hmm. war so people yes. get, people kind of going to that being upset with something in context makes more sense than it would now it does <clears throat> and that's before we even get to the beheadings so true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> it's uh, a a interesting time in missouri history now you know not long after september 13th 1865 colonel ward colonel george ward nichols uh, a writer for harper's bazaar found mm -hmm. hickok and began the interviews that would ultimately bring hickok's name into nationwide and of course even international focus yes and and by all accounts uh, while bill was the primary testimony and yeah. and was quite adept at spinning his own story <laughs> well <clears throat> the uh a not the only but a, a a very important part of the american hero motif is to be really really good at self-promotion yes because just just <laughs> we're we're Americans, what can I say? Yeah. That's <laughs> it's, true. It's 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 an innate part of our unique culture, rapidly being exported around the world by multinational brands. Um but uh David Tutt was originally buried in the Springfield City Cemetery. He was reinterred in the Maple Park Cemetery in March of 1883. Interestingly enough, by Tut's half brother Lewis, uh, who was a former slave and the son of Tut's father, uh, and one of his father's female slaves. Yes, and Lewis, if I remember right, was a deputy in Greene County for a brief time. Oh, that is cool. And I want to say that he is buried in Springfield. I may be wrong on that, but I want to say he's buried in Springfield as well. Well, we'll need to look that up. Uh, at, at the time of all of this, the, the locations of a lot of these things happening are cl pretty clearly known, pretty clearly marked. There are markers mm -hmm. on the square mm -hmm. uh, of all of this. <clears throat> and it, it's neat to actually go to the Springfield Square specifically for the purpose of locating this because it does give you an idea of the distances involved it's not uh it's a long way for for a for a shot it, it really is it really is um and there's been a debate over time whether or not hickok steadied the gun on his forearm and you know things like that and um i i think it's rather pointed. i mean just i mean it, it it's almost you know, uh, a Hollywood Western scene, you know, when Tut gets shot, 
he uh, takes a few steps and looks at the fellows around him and says, you know, boys, I, I, I'm, I'm dead and fell over dead on the steps of the courthouse. Yes. <clears throat> yes. It's to me, it's very poignant to say the it, least. It really is. It really is. And um, and really, I mean, they could have gone either way. And, and Davis Tett walked off the square of hero and legend. You know, I mean, it, it yes. very well could have gone the other way. It it could have. You just <clears throat> the the aspect of the fates are are quite powerful. <laughs> Uh, particularly right now during Saturnalia, but uh, but anytime really. And uh, I, I found this a, a really interesting note. Uh, it's just an aside, perhaps a closing note of uh, this particular part of the story. But uh, Hickok was living in the Lion House, uh, which is a boarding house on South Avenue. And uh, from what we can tell, it's. Uh, it's, it's actual present day location. Of course, the, that building has been long, is long gone, replaced by commercial property, but it's uh, 318 South Avenue, Springfield would mm -hmm. be the location for where the boarding house was in which Hickok was staying at the time. Yes, I mean, it's, you know, all these places are there and um, which is very, you know, is really interesting to think about. And, and the, 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 there's, there's two aspects of that that I find really, really fascinating. The first one is how much this history exists, but is overlooked. Yes. Uh, the second is how much history that is there, that there is documentation for it, may not be well known, but there is documentation for it. And these are not difficult locations to find or, 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 or go to, you know, to physically go to. Exactly. So that, that's something that, you know, we, we will probably be doing at some point. Yes. And, uh, and <clears throat> on all of these, particularly in the downtown area, um, immediately south and east of downtown, et cetera, were, were spaces of, uh, of war, violence, uh, deaths, etc. And if you're a Springfieldian and you're curious about paranormal activity, etc., and have things that you'd like to share, please do not hesitate, either uh, publicly or privately. If you need to share privately, we're more than happy to keep everything private on that regard and respect everybody's mm -hmm. spaces. If it's a space that you feel comfortable having that be more public, that works too. We're just always curious about individuals firsthand experiences yes we are i mean there's and there's certainly a number of hauntings in the downtown area um yes. we'll probably get into more of that later perhaps next week but um you know some people might be surprised that central high school has been renowned as being haunted for a very long time i i, I remember being there in high in in high school uh, for events and just being there for the day and hearing tales of, of hauntings in the building. 
and um, and then of course Drury certainly is um, has its hauntings around the square um, University um, Plaza. Yes, resident ghost and uh, many more. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into some of those, but there are, I, I guess this may, maybe to switch gears a little bit, there, there, there have been some odd happenings, you know, that um, in, in Springfield's history. And I think, I think one of my, sort of the, just the, those odd asides that I always find interesting is the Cobra scare. Me too. Uh, certainly, nothing initiates a visceral response like cobras for many people myself included don't want to run into one though no uh very very knee-jerk response of oh my gosh that's absolutely terrifying i'm just going to crawl up on top of something and stay there because <laughs> for for individuals who, who like me are you know i i deeply respect of snakes in their space, but they can be absolutely terrifying. Now, where I come from in Illinois, the likelihood of running across a venomous snake, while not impossible, is extremely low. It is more likely down here with copperhead, yeah. um, timber rattlers, water moccasins, pygmy rattlers. Okay, anyway. Uh, <laughs> But none of none of them as dangerous as comparatively dangerous as, as our venomous snake species are are anywhere near a cobra. Yes, and of course, people may be asking, why are we talking about cobras in Springfield, Missouri? <laughs> 1953. <laughs> 1953 and near in downtown or near downtown. Uh, a, a minimum of 11 cobras were killed. And as I recall, they, 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 they never had a definitive resolution as to where they came from, but they assumed that they were let loose from a pet store, I think. Yes, <clears throat> yes. Um, there is one report that said between 1953 and 1988, the person in question never said a word, but in 1988 apparently made an alleged confession that uh, he was 14 years old and the, uh, the, the fish that he had gotten from said downtown pet store had died and he was angry about that. And in response, and took the lid off the cage of the pet store's cobras. Of course, I want to know why does a pet store have a bunch of cobras who's buying cobras? <laughs> it's one thing, a ball python is one thing, but a cobra, come on. <laughs> They're hot sellers. Um, <laughs> now, for the record, something that has existed for a long time is uh, you know, an interest in exotic and dangerous animals. True, true. <clears throat> And there is certainly the possibility that uh, uh, restrictions on really dangerous animals were not as strict in 1953 as they are today. And, but, and events like this might have led to more restrictions. 
this is how restrictions happen people this is how it works yeah oh wait a minute this isn't this isn't good (laughs) this is really not good so if and again that particular report is alleged yes uh it it may have been the case it may have been the case that this this guy uh you know waited all these years or you know let's face it people are crazy people do interesting things and say interesting things for a variety of reasons somebody literally could have dreamed this up in 1988 and said hey remember the 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 cobra scare this is what happened so the truth is we don't know but we do know that a unusually statistically you know per capita unusually high number of cobras were in downtown springfield for a brief period of time in 1953 for whatever reason yes uh downtown springfield kind of wandered into the territory of dangerous animals in the everglades for a moment you know (laughs) it was a it was a time slip um I, I can't help but just contemplate the the aspects of how unsettling that would have been at the time. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, and, and talk about, I mean, in essence, this is while while there are potentially very ex, very explicable reasons for this phenomena this is technically a cryptid an animal out of place true that's true you you don't usually find cobras in the mid you know in the middle of the country yeah. so no absolutely terrifying uh yeah like i said i i have a enormous amount of respect for snakes and strongly encourage everyone to know precisely the snake species recognize the snake species respond and react accordingly to snake said snake species be responsible uh with our uh species in regards to the whole herpetology issue (laughs) that said i think they're absolutely terrifying and uh (laughs) even more so when they are extremely venomous yes (laughs) so from there you know um Perhaps um, we should delve into everyone's favorite urban legend in Springfield. The Albino Farm. Yeah. We had to, I'm I'm assuming, considering the number of people who ask us to cover the Albino Farm on a very regular basis, I'm assuming that we're going to have some folks who are ready for us to do that. And Mm -hmm. uh, guess what? It's an urban legend. Yes. Massive um, spoiler alert. Yeah, it's it, it it really is. It's and it's one of those that you almost want to stand and kind of blink slowly and go, how did you guys get from here to here? Um yes. you know, um for those, you know, we we get people who ask, where is the albino farm? One, there was never a place called the albino farm. That, that was a concoction of college kids in the 60s. Please um, see, that's at 43. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was all the adrenaline from the cobra scare that got it. Oh my god! Um, I'm I'm being I'm being totally facetious. Yes, it 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 is it is to me. This is a classic uh, urban legend, mm -hmm. uh, mid century to into really I think probably reaching its its peak late 1970s into the 80s and then you know continuing to take on a life of its own in the 90s urban legend I, I i agree i agree i mean um originally it's a farm it was the sheedy family farm it was a yes. large irish family <clears throat> and they called it the spring lawn farm um it's still there technically um you are not supposed to go on it uh so we do we discourage people from trespassing 100 no, no, it's private property it's, yes no urban exploring no and <clears throat> there's really i mean you what the interesting aspect of this is not the location because the location is a family farm that yeah. that's the the ends that's the heritage that's the history of the location the interesting thing is this legend that gets built up over time that essentially from a cultural standpoint creates its own weather pattern yeah. uh, that is is larger and greater than than the location could possibly be or really any location because it it extends beyond reality it really does and and the story really it seems to sort of mushroom in the 1950s the beginnings okay. of it i was you curious know, the late, when the real kickoff late, was. yeah the late 50s uh and and basically what happened the family owned it for a very long time um and you know they they had a lot i think there were eight or nine children there was a trust with the parents so that when they died it went to the children if one of the children died if their interest was divided among the remaining children until the last child died and so they tended to stay to themselves so you you know i think there was a curiosity factor there um then um, somehow the albino part of the of the legend comes in, and th this is almost the Scooby Doo type version. You know, we we have supposedly you know the story went that the family had albinoism. You know, no, they didn't. Then there was a version that there was a caretaker there. We we have our caretaker, and that this was an albino. And then it morphed into, you know, murders took place and things like that, supposedly in the legend. Um, and the albino would carry a hatchet or an axe, um, which, uh, you know, is check off another box of urban legend. Um, ironically, not too many miles away, there is a, 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 a place in the Springfield area that is the Hatchet Man Bridge, which, had a legend of basically this this man with a hatchet would chase people and then over time it became you know it was a ghost of a man 
with a hatchet. And so it was the Hatchet Man Bridge. And I kind of think part of this got merged with the albino idea. And so now you have an albino Hatchet Man murdering people at the albino farm, which is actually the Sheedy family farm. Yes. <clears throat> I, but, I, yeah, but it goes so bad that that trespass. You know, you know, kids, college kids would go out, and they had to hire security to run people off. And I mean, it, it really got out of hand. Yes, <clears throat> yes. And as as just as we were going over this, I was thinking about some points of comparison. We're uh, post post war. Uh, mm -hmm. World War II war, post-World right. War II. We are <clears throat> looking at, you know, of course, for the, you know, the Second World War was obviously a, a worldwide event that affected nearly everyone uh, in mm -hmm. the industrialized world. And lots and lots of people who were not in the industrialized world were was not anticipating having armies and navies showing up in their backyard. Sure. Uh, and either conscripting them or killing them. But <clears throat> unlike the, the American Civil War in the 1860s, fast forward the 80 years to um, the Second World War, the contiguous United States was, the, the war did not reach um, the, to any large degree, the United States, right. thankfully. And while many of our men and fighting men and women served overseas and were killed um, in, in that we did not have land battles, we did not have bombings, we did not have these things here in the United States. And <clears throat> at, the, at the same time, we look at the major uh, cultural and industrial changes that dr drastically shifted the, the, the nature of the United States during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And we see similarly mass cultural change taking place in the 1940s and the 1950s. And cultural change that is much easier to overlook because it is not being affected by immediate battles. Right, so it's not violent in that sense. No, and so you, you don't, it's, it's easy not to realize just how, um, how much upheaval, how much almost calamitous change to the previous culture that took place, but it was things like essentially the emptying of rural America for uh, urban industrial centers. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> one of the things that I, I find potentially very fascinating about this dynamic is that you have, first of all, in the say 15 years prior to uh, this urban legend developing, mm -hmm. you have a generation of Americans leaving the farms, uh, leaving their small communities that had become over several generations, very tight-knit, uh, structured and structural communities in which everyone knows pretty much everyone. Um, 
And we see this transition to the impersonality of the suburbs, of the uh, sort of cookie cutter homes, cookie cutter lives, uh, and and the fact that increasingly our our uh, our human nature identity being shaped by our choice of brands, uh, our association with uh, with larger industry, our association with uh, the, that strata of American commercialism. Then the children of that upheaval go to school. They go to school and suddenly in large droves are going to places like MSU, not mm -hmm. MSU at the time, but. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it reminded me, and I may be completely bonkers, uh, but it reminded me a little bit of the some of the reports uh, that we we had in regards to skinwalkers, how the the skinwalker uh, shaman cult held an important place, but existed within a a, a community and a cultural fabric that mm -hmm. prevented elements of it from becoming dangerous or becoming toxic, that it's important to utilize that this, this uh, um, subcult, and I use that term in a mostly positive way, I'm not using it as a pejorative, uh, that this subcult had value and structure, but as uh, Native American peoples, particularly the Navajo, uh, had their community fabric destroyed, by um, <clears throat> intervention, by federal intervention and the transition to the reservations and the destruction of that structure that the, the subset cults uh, could become toxic or out of control because they were no longer being balanced by a, a larger process or a larger global context for their, the people. In a almost unspoken or uh unrecognized way i think that we see something similar with these large droves of kids suddenly going to college being uh stripped even unconsciously of that fabric and then beginning to make their own through the development of urban legend well i th I, I think there's something there i mean it's 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 that sudden freedom and unrestrained unrestricted and what do you do with it i think there's i th i think there's merit there and then something else that comes to my mind is these are also kids who suddenly find themselves in the cold war and yeah. so in the past you you felt like you could identify who you know where your dangers were and even during world war ii you knew where the dangers were and weren't. Now under, uh, with the Cold War, you knew there was a huge danger, but it was everywhere. And there was a powerlessness. And so um, I, I think it, it became a, you know, almost an unspoken, spoken in some, you know, knowledge in some ways but sort of this ongoing unspoken feeling of 
we know any moment could be the end and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. Um, yes. Which <clears throat> creates a need to face those fears and face the boogeyman. And if you don't yes. have a boogeyman, you create one. Right. And then you go face him, much yeah. to the uh, chagrin of the shitty family. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> just, just hang out a little placard that says "Axe Murdering Albino Not Here Today." Check in later. <laughs> yes, if it weren't for those kids, <laughs> those family kids. Rut row. Oh, and then of course, uh, another spicy aspect of the urban subculture of the Queen City involves vampires. It does, and there's there there's two aspects of it here that I that are interesting to me. One is is definitely a 1990s culture that was not restricted to Springfield. It, it existed no. in various urban places around America, uh, a vampire um, lifestyle. And yes. um, there, there was a large um, uh, vampire culture in New York City and New Orleans and various other places, a pretty prominent murder of a journalist in New York City during the late 80s, early 90s, um, um, highlighted this. And all, all of this kind of came to the forefront through a pretty prominent uh, murder trial in the 90s, the Feeney murder trial. And yes. we'll, we'll get into that next time. But I think it's also uh, worthy of note that this was not you know, just a product of the 1980s and 90s in Springfield, that actually the idea of a vampire subculture, there are hints of it going back quite a ways in Springfield, that you can't tie to this other, to the broader pop culture movement. And, and that aspect of it, <clears throat> to me, is incredibly fascinating, because the, the broader subculture is heavily influenced by pop culture yeah and <clears throat> let's face it one of our favorite novelists is heavily responsible for those at least for the modern modern day for the for the modern pop culture mythos of vampires across the world yes Thank you, Anne Rice. We, we do yes. love you for her. <laughs> yes. Um, the Interview with the Vampire is still one of my all-time favorite books. And Brilliantly done. It, it's quite magnificent. And, and Anne Rice was just a, a, a largely phenomenal writer and, yes. and, uh, and thinker, I think it would be fair to say. I do too. And and. and and I think one reason that it, it had such a broad appeal that became a pop culture movement was that her incarnation of vampires was distinct from Bram Stoker. Yes. And 
and, and I think well overdue, I think it was, it was time. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, 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 the Bram Stoker creation is truly magnificent. I, I love the novel and it, it have, have obviously heavily influenced. I do find it interesting how much vampires in the 20th have impacted the 20th century uh, throughout the West, um, and for people who don't know, I'm talking about um, Europe and, and North America. Mm-hmm. But and of course, there are there are vampire esque myths and uh, oh, folkloric uh, aspects across the world, around yeah. the world, in cultures of every every kind. But the the, the thing that is. Uh, that that really was time with the, the uh, with the publication of the interview with the vampire and then the subsequent uh, franchise essentially and uh, and genre shift took place in the late 1970s. Um, but we have the thing that overshadows Stoker's work is the fact that vampire pop culture vampires were essentially the same for decade after decade after decade after Stoker. Uh, Anne Rice was the one to really shift that up uh, and and move things away from the, mm, not only the Stoker mythos, but also the Hammer Horror films, which, which drew heavily from Stoker. Yes, that's true and made it to be honest, made it more relatable. Um, yes, <clears throat> people. Um, and, and and while there was a mystique around the original vampire idea that that Stoker promulgated, um, there there, and, and and certainly uh, just as we're talking about with the Cold War and the albino farm, uh, certain social apprehensions, larger social apprehensions being involved. Uh, Anne Rice really took the, 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 the vampire idea and shifted it into a uh, very emotional and effective allegory for a variety of people, groups, and minorities. Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, and, and by making uh, making the monster empathetic, um, it, it uh, opened the door for this, you know, for a um, imitation culture. Yes, <clears throat> some of which is quite understandable. Some of which is transitioning into wow, I don't get it. Um, yeah <laughs> categories of a variety of stripes zero judgment just observation yeah, yeah but uh, <laughs> something that i and and i love i i love lots and lots of aspects of this in case anybody mm-hmm. just doesn't doesn't already get that but something that i find particularly interesting is the idea that elements of the the vampire cult implication in Springfield predate the pop culture of the late 80s into the 90s. And predate 
the the release of Interview with a Vampire, period. Yes. So what do we know about it at this point? Well, I mean, there are there are illusions. And again, part of this, you know, it, it, it could come down to urban legend or maybe not, but um, tales of basically secret clubs going back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, uh, you know, having some sort of blood ritual, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to know um, what all was involved, but it, it's, but enough sort of anecdotal stories come out that there seems to be something of the motif anyway. Certainly yes. not, certainly more, probably more influenced by Bram Stoker, obviously. Um, and I guess we should say he did not invent vampirism. Um, yes. The concept of vampires goes back thousands of years, but, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's, you know, sort of uh, usually the anecdotal evidence is, you know, that so-and-so related a story that they had heard type thing, but it just seems a, a totally out of place kind of thing, different than what you typically find for the time period, which makes you wonder if there isn't something to it. It does, <clears throat> it does. And of course it doesn't have to be vampires, but no. certainly odd, uh, odd things happening. Yes, yes. But uh, again, you know, um, centering around, you know, the idea of creatures of the night and, and blood letting type things. Yes. So it, it, it does make you wonder. Um, it does. I don't, I, and I don't necessarily think that one is tied to the other. Mm -hmm. um, that would certainly be interesting if there were continuity, but I don't necessarily think there are. So, you know, that's something that is certainly noir and goes back a long ways. Well, <laughs> and it, it also uh, <clears throat> easily speaks to, is something that is, as a general rule is overlooked in terms of and we're talking about downtown Springfield specifically, or I'm talking about downtown Springfield very specifically, mm -hmm. is that there were certain um, difficulties in development of downtown Springfield. And that is coming back to the Springs and coming back to uh, the, the area was originally crisscrossed with, uh, with creeks and with wet weather or wet, you know, uh, rain creeks right that it was uh, that those had to be controlled uh mm -hmm. in order for for urban development to take place in the urban infrastructure the way to create that is to invest heavily in an extensive drain uh network beneath downtown yes and that figures in strongly with the vampire culture of the 90s it does yes. not seem to 
be a part of the stories from the early 1900s. Right. Um, they seem to, you know, the stories are that they would meet various buildings, etc. So um, it, it, it's just odd that you have sort of two, two variants of vampire culture in the lore of Springfield. Yes. <clears throat> and there there's and, and I think this is something that we we will dedicate additional time and episodes and research to as as we move forward. But there's in into 2023. I just realized this is our last yeah. This is our, our last uh, uh, episode of 2022. It's that just crossed my mind right now. <laughs> I've been so focused on notes, I didn't bother to look at the calendar. But uh, it's been an amazing year. Dark Ozarks has had an amazing year. It, it, we really have, and we really want to thank everyone for that too. Absolutely, <laughs> it's. Uh, but I, I'm, you know, there, there are a lot of stories, and and even some some pretty credible articles and interesting things that are written just in regards to the um, the tunnel system, the network tunnel system. Yeah. And, but regardless of what's down there, and you can go to, you know, the, the two extremes are, there's nothing down there, you're ridiculous, and oh my gosh, vampires are real. Those are the, the two extremes. Um, yeah. Reality typically exists somewhere in the flexible middle, but not implying vampires are real, I don't think, but I used to think the same thing about skinwalkers, and uh, here we are. But... Um, there is something innately creepy about dark tunnel spaces that are difficult and dangerous to access and to uh, just to to find out about. And and especially I think the, the really unnerving part is that these spaces can exist uh, directly, you know, beneath our feet and we we typically have no idea that it's even there right literally a few feet away walk by the openings yeah. and a yeah. lot of people would not even know what they're walking past and the idea that that's that's just where the that's just where the rainwater runs yep yeah, well th there's well, a lot down there well you know of course that evokes you know stephen king's it you know i mean it's you know <laughs> <laughs> we all float down here i know i was i was really thinking about that you know the the and so many of the of the things that have that evoke folkloric horror is mm -hmm. is the the unseen yes yes and and that that qualifies and not only with the tunnel system but the idea of the the vampire culture whether it's modern day or 100 years ago it is. It is. And it's it's no wonder, regardless of exactly where reality lands, it's no wonder that it doesn't that it captures our imagination. That's that's very, very true. Um, I'm thinking, why don't we touch on um, the Emma Malloy story and we yes. may leave the rest for next time. I think time-wise, I think that is is excellent, and the the Malloy story is <clears throat> tragic, juicy, mm -hmm. 
tabloid worthy. Yes. And it was tabloid worthy at the time. <laughs> yes. And very, very interesting. And of course, uh, a shout out to uh, author Larry Wood as well for yes. having put a lot of work into uh, documenting this history. Yes, and, and Larry's a friend of ours um, and we've done events with him in the past. Um, and um, he has written a, a book on, on the case. Um, and basically we, you have you have a post-Civil War outspoken woman who ends up being suckered in by a con man. Yes. Throw in, in a little bigamy and, and, and murder and um, falling from grace. <laughs> Well, to be fair, it was just a pinch of bigamy. <laughs> just a pinch. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we step back and Emma Malloy um, is an interesting character. She, um, she was a newspaper woman at a time that generally women were not yes. just after the Civil War. Um, mm -hmm in Indiana, if I remember correctly. Yes. And um, had been married and divorced, which was unusual for the time. Yes. Um, she then um, was prominent in the temperance movement. Um, right. And some people may not be familiar with what the temperance movement was. But as, no, as, no alcohol all the time. That's right. No liquor anytime. And, um, and it, it, it grew uh, variously from religious sectors as well as um, social consciousness that perhaps alcohol was not helping some of the social ills of the family in particular. Um, right. And that, that I think was, was a primary driver. <clears throat> Alcohol was seen as the, as, as the point of blame mm -hmm. uh, for things like the breakdown of the family, for domestic abuse, uh, for, you know, lots and lots of social ills and <clears throat> really became a rallying cry at the, the, this you know sort of 1880s and <laughs> until prohibition when we found out just how devastating it could be to actually enact this on a federal level um, <laughs> welcome to gangsters um and uh and bootlegging but it uh you know i think for a, for a long time until the until the repeal of prohibition it, it was largely seen as a modernist movement. And I, th I think it was really a response to a lot of, uh, of the chaos that came out, uh, societal chaos that came out of the Civil War, uh, trying to address that. Um, uh, a bit misguided, but... Um, Their hearts but, were in the right place. 
I'll there you go. Their, their, yes. their methodology. Of course, Carrie Nation uh, was the, um, the, the, the true spokesperson for the, for the, the national movement. And uh, she has a strong association with Eureka Springs history, which yes. I find yes. particularly she ironic. Well, and I, and I do find that interesting that, you know, uh, as the scandal broke in Springfield, as we get into it, you know, many wanted to say that, that she was persecuted by, by the area public because she was an independent woman and in the temperance movement, but she was not isolated. No. In, in that in that situation and and we had people like Carrie Nation who were violent in in their in their crusade very so, much so. and, and I, I just want to intersect inter, interject on this um I know for example uh having read the rather extensive history of Centerville Iowa um not that long ago the the book is massive <clears throat> that for example, the, the local temperance movement there, uh, because they felt that, first of all, that they had moral authority and, uh, and societal degree that, that what they were doing was for the greater good, uh, would regularly initiate violence against the saloons on the south side of town. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I know that that was not an isolated event. No, and, and Carrie Nation certainly illustrates that. Um, and with Emma Malloy, she, she went about things a little differently, um, but she also worked um, My memory here, um, and um, she really felt that he was being rehabilitated and wanted to give him a chance. Yes, which is very kind. Yes, and what what was Graham's first name? I forget. Do we? Uh, George. George. I couldn't remember George. Um, and. George was married to Sarah and had children and had been, they'd been divorced. And so while uh, Miss Malloy gave him a job and so forth, and he uh, became involved with her foster daughter, Coralie. Yes. And, <clears throat> and at first Emma was concerned uh, and about the situation, she went to the extent of verifying that he had been divorced from his wife. Right. What she didn't check on and what she didn't realize was that his wife had remarried him. Yes. <laughs> Minor <laughs> detail. Minor yeah. detail. After he got out of prison, no less. And mm -hmm. so he was married to his wife who ended up staying in Indiana for a time. And he came, uh, Emma relocated to the Springfield area with yes. her children. And he came along and shortly after he and Coralie get married. <clears throat> yes. And then 
Mrs. Graham, Sarah Graham, has had enough. And so she makes her way to Missouri with her children. Mm -hmm. He meets them in St. Louis. And she's determined that she's going to straighten out this Coralie problem. Yes. And what happens is she, Sarah ends up dead at the bottom of a well on Emma Malloy's property. Correct. And, and is discovered in late February of 1885. Yes, about six months later. And so Graham is arrested but then they also arrest Emma Malloy and Coralie as accomplices. Yes. <clears throat> and, and Coralie actually goes through two trials before she's acquitted. Mm -hmm. But in between, um, uh, Ma breaks Graham out of jail, marches him up Boonville ostensibly going to take him to the Malloy farm and throw him into the same well, but instead they hang him. Yes. <clears throat> and, and, as the, and as they're hanging him, he, he, he proclaims that Coralie and Emma have nothing to do with the killing of Sarah. Right, right. Now at one point, there's also the accusation that he was intimately involved with both. Yes. In terms of, of who precisely did what, we, we know who ended up dead and <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we know whose body was pulled out of the well. Uh, and we know that George was lynched. Yes. And Coralie seems to have come out after the acquittal rather unscathed and not shunned or blamed. Uh, right. right. There does seem to have been more... Um, visited towards Emma, and she actually never regained her status in the temperance movement. Right. <clears throat> and I think it, it's, um, at the, it, it might be hard for us to, you know, place into context, but, you know, that Malloy was a, a nationally recognized speaker at this, yeah. at this juncture. Um, and, and so, and a speaker on a, on a clearly controversial topic to begin with. So there, there was, there was plenty of, of individuals who um, were her fans and certainly plenty of people who were her detractors. And so to associate, to, to have, and, and then have this incredibly high profile case that was so scandalous, uh, associated with this person, and not only consequently the person, but the movement, there, it was a big deal. 
it 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 really was um and it's you know um as we said you know it's you know was it was it simply for the fact that that um it was a means of ending her influence as a temperance um, activist it's hard to know because there were quite a few and and she was pretty tame in that regard compared to many um yeah. <clears throat> although she was a noted speaker um i'm sure it did play a play a role though um yeah <clears throat> i to me it seems unlikely and i i, I want to correct make correct a statement that i i made just a few moments ago it was february 1886 1886 not 1885 uh yeah. that that uh sarah graham's body was found and uh the farmstead was near modern day republic yeah yeah it wasn't too wasn't wasn't very far from springfield and they no. they they headed out from the jail on down in downtown uh springfield uh, oh yeah it just, i mean it, it just it, didn't it, make it that far no <clears throat> as you know as happens but uh i mean springfield the the reason for them being in the 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 uh, immediate vicinity of republic was because of springfield uh malloy had been invited to come as a speaker and then consequently uh moved onto a farm in, yes in, in the immediate region yeah liked the area and moved and um so you know i i, th I think it's I, I it seems to me likely that her detractors did use it I'm sure against her, but I have to wonder if more of the issue was the facts of the case, yeah, than, than her role as an activist. I, I, I very much agree with that. Uh, first of all, as you noted, there uh, appears to be uh, activists in the movement that were much more vocal. Um, Malloy was. Uh, was simply a popular speaker on the subject and uh one of her first relationships that ended uh because her her husband drank and was allegedly abusive so she was mm -hmm. speaking from a a point of of personal experience of lived experience in this which i'm sure added a lot to her passion <clears throat> yeah but, i'm sure it did none none of that um you know has has a has an impact on just how scandalous this case was yes i mean it it really was it was the combination of all all of the facts i think that you know uh, people in the area i'm sure you know were outraged but candidly those within the temperance movement probably were legitimately worried that that would overshadow her ability to advance the cause i'm sure it did i'm sure i'm sure it was i'm sure it did uh whether or not it it diminished the cause of course is is up for debate um the fact that we still got prohibition suggests that it didn't do that much uh no i don't 
Yeah, I don't I don't think it did. I just I, I think the fact that her presence in the movement did not um, go back to pre-scandal levels was probably more just prudent um, moves by the movement saying we, we, we don't we don't want unnecessary detractions. Um, but by the same token, I don't think her presence in the movement was the basis for her being targeted for the prosecution. No, I, I strongly, strongly agree with that. And, <laughs> you know, to a certain degree, you have to go, look, um, the case presents itself. You, know, you walked, you walked into the quicksand. <laughs> Nobody yeah. dumped the quicksand on you. Uh, yes, if we have blinders on, we can't help that. <laughs> <laughs> that, and while while it seems comparatively unlikely that Malloy was living some sort of scandalous double life, doing all of these nefarious things, uh, what does seem quite reasonable is a level of unpreparedness or naivete in regards to George Graham. Yes, yes, and it, it so it does make you wonder, you know, how how much of a con man he was that. Um, he was able to um, get as far as he did with with this. So, right, and I think you know, just in terms of of uh, social commentary, there there there's two aspects. I suspect that George was pretty good at what he did. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, I suspect suspect only um, that at some point he had to say, "Wow, this is easy pickings," because the the so much of the uh the momentum around Malloy's efforts was on rehabilitation yeah and she would I think I think she was inadvertently predisposed to want to make him an example of her arguments oh I think so and I think he played into that certainly which now something that is that that it is really um, really, really interesting in regards to uh, the the case, it, particularly in regards to you know post uh, lynching of, <laughs> of George. And we should note that that everyone in question, including the person being lynched in this bit of history, they were all white. Yes. Yes this none of this was race related as far as i can tell no. um the the leaders of the party artfully gave their followers the slip by starting in the direction of the malay place but changed their course as soon as the others turned back and while yet within the city limits hanged george to a tree within just one hour after the attack was made on the jail uh <clears throat> this note was penned to the body quote we heartily welcome all strangers to citizenship who are pure of purpose and act of good faith. But we give this as a warning to ex-convicts and murderers who may hereafter invade our county to impose on our credulity. We also give warning that any person or persons of any rank or station who dare to discover the actors in this tragedy will be surely and speedily dispatched to hell where all things are revealed to the curious. Injustice to the memory of Sarah Graham, a loving wife, a dear mother, whose life was sacrificed at the altar of Hecate, 
we subscribe ourselves. And then there was a note to the sheriff as well. Yes. And just as, as we're potentially wrapping up, I find it really interesting that the um, Greco-Roman goddess of crossroads and witchcraft is invoked at the hanging of George Brown. <laughs> yes, it is rather interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, another bit of noir uh, trivia there. So I, I just want to know if he was hanged at the crossroads now. I am curious. I haven't found uh, I haven't found information of the exact location, which I want to find now. But I um, so and 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 honestly, you can take that from the note that you know basically them saying that maybe George had made a deal with the crossroads demon, or on the other hand. They had. Right. One, one thing that is objectively obvious about that note from the lynching party, they were not uneducated. No, that's, that's very clear. We, yes, that is, that is very clear. That, that, that might go down in the history of post-mortem um uh, pinned to one shirt commentary after a lynching uh, of being the most eloquent to go down in history. I don't know. I haven't compared any others, but just You know, it has a Shakespearean twist to it. It really does. <laughs> yes. does. Uh, wow. But, you know, uh, reference to Hecate. I, I really, I'm, I'm now obsessed about this case yes <laughs> and perhaps that is a good point to leave off at yes and we will be visiting much more of dark tales of springfield in the yes. meantime don't forget to check out upcoming events and merchandise at darkosarts.com and paranormalsciencelab.com Thank you again to Always Buying Books and Beard Engine Brewing Company for helping bring the Dark Ozarts to everyone. On the next episode, we're going to be discussing, guess what, more dark tales from the Queen City of the Ozarks, Springfield, Missouri, including The Missing Three and more. Catch the Dark Ozarks podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. And thank you to everyone. And remember, there are no easy answers in the Dark Ozarks.